All right, so tonight, this is going to annoy me, all service. Tonight we're going to continue our series on Abraham, or in this passage he's called Abram, that was his name before. Um, And this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. It's a very unique passage of Scripture. Um, And, you know, there's a very interesting character mentioned, or or individual um, named Melchizedek mentioned in this passage, and there's a lot that's said about him. There's a lot of speculation that different Christians and theologians and and students of God's Word have. Um, But I I hope we can just look at this passage tonight as it is and look at the truths that we can find in it and apply them to our lives together tonight. But before we go ahead in our message tonight, let's pray together, and then we'll continue. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much um, for the truth that we find in your Word. Lord, we thank you that, that you save us, that you call us out, that, Lord, you, you offer a life that is different, oh, that, that we couldn't live on our own. And, God, we thank you so much for the love that you've given to us and the story of the gospel and how, how the story of Jesus is written on every page of Scripture. And, God, we can see how your love was planning for us that we might know you even from these passages in Genesis And Lord, we pray that we would trust you, that we would accept the call that you've given to us and walk with you every single day of our lives. Lord, I pray that we we might be called friends of God, just as Abraham was. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, One of of the things that I like to look at um, when I watch, you know, entertainment, movies or TV or whatever, one of the things that I like to look for in a good story um, is called a character arc. As in the character, it's, you know, you know, an arc is like this shape. A character starts in one place and ends in another. So as the character, as you watch on, or even in books, even, you know, it's in books as well, obviously. But in movies especially, I like to, you know, judge movies based on whether or not there's an actual arc in the character, as, as in, is this character learning lessons? Is, is he learning to become a better person? Does he have problems? And that's, that's ultimately the foundation of a character arc, is that the character must have flaws. The, the character, he has to have imperfections that prevent him from accomplishing his goals, okay? And so that's, that's the mark of a good character, of the character learning how to become a better person and learning new skills and new things in order to accomplish his goals that he couldn't accomplish before. And that's an arc, right? They start in one place and they have to learn new things and become a better person and they end up being able to accomplish their goals. And that's, a, that's, that's one of the marks of a good story, is, is whether or not the protagonist or the main character learns things and becomes better and accomplishes things that he's failed at before, right? And so we see this, this idea of a character arc. It's so vivid. I know it's you know, kind of silly to think about it in entertainment. That's, that's, that pales in comparison as far as significance goes as, as to looking at God's word. But we see a character arc in the life of Abraham. And in fact, tonight we're, we're going to see, I think, one of the major steps that he takes in his life where before he made certain mistakes and now he has learned to overcome them, right? And it's by the grace of God that he does that. Um, but, but ultimately, he has an arc in his story. And I, I, that's going to be what we'll see tonight is that Abraham, 
he made mistakes like, his, like we've mentioned in the past few weeks where he went into Egypt and he lied and, and he cheated and he put others at risk, right? He, he did all these things that were, were really dishonest and selfish and now we see him making decisions that are not that way. And I, I'd like to really, that's going to, there's a lot that's said about this passage. There's a lot, um, you know, if you look at commentaries or you listen to messages, there's a lot that goes into it. But uh, I, I just like to look at the things that we know to be true. And that is the true significance to me of this passage, that Abraham makes decisions that he didn't make before, right? Um, and so, I, and it's, it's a message of grace to us where we live as well right? Be, because we make mistakes. We have imperfections. We have flaws in, in our humanity, and we mess up. We fail at things. And so the, the Christian life, like we've said so many times, it's not about perfection. It's about direction. And so what we need to learn is that God is teaching us and molding us, and he's making us to be more like Christ. And just like Abraham, we, we might make mistakes in certain areas. We might have imperfections that we feel we can't get over. But by the grace of God, as we follow him and we make decision after decision to trust him, um, we, we are then able to make decisions that we couldn't make before um, in, our, in our free will. And that's, that's what we see in Abraham in this passage um, tonight. So, we're going to look at Abraham, and I'd like to kind of title this message, In the World But Not of the World. That's, that's the story of Abraham in this passage. How he, lear he learned to live in the world, but he was not of the world. And we're going to read this passage. I know it's quite a few verses. I'll try to, you know, tell the story as the passage does. And then we'll continue um, with the message. But I just want to kind of get a feel for what's going on. Um, just an overview before we go into it. So what happens in this passage, there is one group of kings that rebels against another group of kings, right? The, the, um, the, the, the five kings, I'm, getting, I'm gonna get this mixed up here. The five kings rebel against the four kings. The four kings had been in charge. The five kings decide they don't wanna follow these guys and pay tribute anymore. So then the, the original kings, the four come and defeat the five, okay? And so basically that's what we're gonna read in this passage. And Abraham's family, his, his nephew Lot, gets involved and mixed up in this, this situation. The Bible says in Genesis 14, verse number 1, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom. And with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the vale of Siddim, which is the salt sea. Twelve years they served Kedor Laomer, and in the thir thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Kedor Laomer and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth, Kernaim, and the Susims in Ham, and the Emims in Sheva Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the Mount Seir, unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, 
and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hezazon Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom. So the king of Sodom goes out and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Belah, the same as Zorah, Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim with Kedor Laomer, the king of Elam and with Tidal, king of nations and with Amraphel, king of Shinar and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings with five. So setting the sto- these, these five kings rebel against their masters, the four kings, and they, they meet in this valley. <clears throat> and the vale of Sidon was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. Or you could say they, they went down into the slime pits. That's what fell there means. They, they went down into the slime pits, and they that remained fled to the mountain and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their victuals and went their way and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So they take Abram's nephew, Lot. They, they take him captive and everything that he owns. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that, that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods." the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kerdor Laomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and, ble- and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hands. And, and he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Save, that, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre, and <clears throat> let them take their portion. So that is a, that is, there's a lot going on in this passage, but like we've said, ultimately what, what happens, there were four kings, or excuse me, there were five kings that were tired of serving these four. They didn't want to pay tribute to them anymore. So they rebelled against them. These four kings decide then to basically raise up their armies, which at this time probably it was not big, gigantic armies. Like it's not, it's not like armies we would think when we see, you know, epic battles on TV or we read in history books, these ginormous battles. It was probably more like raiding parties. These, these guys were each more like chiefs or, you know, mayors of individual cities. Okay, so these, the, the, this army wasn't huge, 
But it was a bit, they were big armies for that time, okay? And so they, they gather up all these men and they're going to go make these guys, uh, you know, they're basically going to b- beat them into submission. So they'll, you know, pay tribute and things and they'll be um, their servants again. And so uh, Lot was living near Sodom at this time. He basically was a part of the culture, uh, that, that civilization there. He was a part of their economy. Lot, Abram's nephew, even though he probably shouldn't have been there, um, Lot was there, right? And, and, and he gets taken captive because he was associated with the, the uh, city of Sodom. And a lot of people, you know, make a big, big deal about how Abraham decides to go and to rescue him. Um, and how he's, you know, he's, he's taking initiative. He's doing the right thing. He's, he's, he's doing God's will and all these things. We don't really see any. Basically, we just see that Abraham takes action. I don't really think there's any spiritual application to be made there. It's just an event. It's, it's something that happens in history. Abraham went to go and save his, his, his nephew um, Lot. That, that's, that's all that's going on there. So first of all, number one, Abram is in the world. And we have in the world, not of the world. First of all, he's in the world. But there is one thing that I, one note, this is not the main point of the passage. But there is one note that I do want to make here, that Christians are not to be monks. Or we're not called to monasticism. Right? We're, we're, not, we're not called, and I'm going, I'm going to try to run the slides here for a second. Someone was on my phone. What I mean by monasticism is, you know, the monks, their spirituality, they, what, what they thought that spirituality meant was basically um, separating themselves entirely, not just from the world's way of thinking, but also from all the things of the world. Right? They thought to enjoy life and, and to enjoy what was going on is wrong. It's sinful. It's, it's wrong to enjoy good food. It, 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 it's, it's wrong to enjoy what we um, work for. It's wrong to have possessions. It's wrong to have nice things. None of those things are wrong. Those are blessings that God has given to mankind. He's allowed us, I mean, Ecclesiastes is very clear. We are allowed to enjoy the fruits of our labor, right? And there's a balance there, obviously. But, but as believers, we are called to live in the world and not to separate ourselves entirely and make ourselves to be monks. The monks, they created these settlements on the outskirts of humanity, of civilization, far away from cities and from anywhere where they could do trading and all these things. And they, they would purposely not use tools that, that made things easier in life. They, they were all about um, separating themselves from anything that had to do with the material world. And that's not what believers are called to do. We are not to be, and what, what I mean by this is we are not to be pacifists necessarily there is there is nothing wrong with defending yourself that's ultimately what what i want to say here is that as believers while our main concerns what what we are mainly focused on are spiritual things we are it's not wrong to also have concerns that are material such as if you're a father then you are called to to protect your family and provide for them right there's nothing wrong with protecting and providing for your family and, you know, and the same thing, if you're a mother, you have certain responsibilities to your children, to your, you know, if you have one to your husband and, and all these things. There's nothing wrong with having responsibilities in the world and God has given those to us. And Abram is a great picture of this 
because just because he's a Christian and he's thinking, you know, well, I, I shouldn't say Christian, just because he's a believer and, and he, he's focused on serving God and he separated himself from the sin and the wickedness that was going on in those cities, he still had earthly concerns. And there's nothing wrong with still having earthly concerns as long as we don't make those the main concerns. Okay, and so, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about how Christians should, we should be pacifists, we should not want to hurt other people, and all, and all these, and you know, yes, we should be very, very careful and diligent to, to consider when we get involved physically in altercations, because we understand that human beings are eternal souls, and what we do in an altercation physically has eternal consequences, Right? That's just the state of things. But at the same time, it's not wrong to defend yourself. And that's what Abram did in this passage. But another note that I want to make about Abram and going to save Lot and all, and all these different things. Secondly, spiritual victories are not material. Spiritual victories are not material. Abram, if, if we remember, we go back to what we studied about Abram, Abram so far. Like I've already said tonight even, when he went to Egypt, he really messed up. He, he lied. He put his, his wife in danger. He, he was all about self, protecting himself and the financial gain that he perceived the Pharaoh to offer him and all these, and all these different things. Everything about that, basically it was one mistake after another that Abram made and a, a godless pagan, horrible, probably wicked king was the one who heard from God and understood what was going on spiritually. So Abram failed when he was in a, in a situation to, to where he had to either please self or please God. He had a spiritual failure. But when it came to physical, um, physical acumen, a physical situation, Abram was very adept at winning. Right? He was a very successful businessman. He owned a lot of things. He had a lot of cattle. He had a lot of servants. He had a lot of people that lived in his house and worked for him. Um, and also, in this passage, we see he's also got some military pr prowess. A Abram's also very skilled in, in commanding a, an army, basically. I mean, it's a small army, about 300, you know, probably around 400 or so, who knows. But um, he, he is um, very adept as a military commander. But that doesn't change the fact that he was a failure spiritually back in Egypt. And the, the, uh, to me, there is a very, very poignant um, contrast here between Abram's success in the material world and Abram's failure spiritually up to this point. And we're going to, we're, you know, this, we, we've already read the passage. We're going to see how Abram actually and in the end, I think he has a spiritual victory in this passage. But I, I, I just want to make the application tonight for us. It's, it's very, very easy to get focused on the material world and think about how successful we are, even, even with, with family. E even with thinking, oh, well, well my, you know, my, my family is good. My, you know, if you have kids, my, my kids are pretty good kids. That, you know, they haven't really messed up. They're good kids. Or they're in church and... And, or, or, you know, they're married and they're providing for themselves and all. And those things are all good things. But we cannot excuse our spiritual failures with our material victories. Even, even when it comes to things that are good, like, like family or providing for your family or, 
or um, you know, having good friends, or, or having a happy life, or having a good reputation in the community. All those things are good things that we should, we should strive for. But like I've already said, those are not the main thing. And we have to remember that ultimately God is considered or concerned with our hearts. And Abram was, was, a, was a successful guy. Had, you know, had, had, a, had a lot of possessions, had a great business, had a good family, all these different things. Abram was a successful, materially, he was a successful guy. But spiritually, he had, had some failures. And in our lives, I, I, just, I just want us to stop and think for a moment. Are we satisfied with material success when we know that really our hearts are not seeking after God? That, that our affections are not ultimately set on him? We, we must not be satisfied with doing good things and things that are probably even considered morally good and acceptable by people. We, we can't get distracted by those things and forget that God is concerned that he is first in my life. That my hope is in him and him alone. That I'm not, I'm not, I'm not looking to, you know, the success at my job. I, I'm not looking to the good family that I have for my ultimate feeling of fulfillment. That I'm looking to, to God and God alone and my, my following of him and, and how I, I just want to serve him with everything. That, that's what we need to look to ultimately. And that's a, th- a lesson I think we can learn from Abram that he was, he was a materially successful person, but really what matters is when we're spiritually victorious. When we, when we live a life of seeking God and God alone. So, all, so first of all, quickly, we've seen um, that Abram lived in the world, but secondly, he was not of the world. And we're going, we're, we're going to look at there, there are these two kings that, you know, we've got 10 kings in this passage, ultimately. You know, we have nine that fought each other, then an, a 10th one that shows up at the end, Melchizedek. Excuse me, in Abram, we see he might have had interactions with other ones, that are, that, and it's not recorded, but recorded in this passage, we see Abram interacted with just two of these kings, um, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. And we're, I, I just like to look at, at how Abram responds to these two kings um, a little bit, and then that, that'll be kind of where we finish things off. But I think this is, this is the thrust of the passage. This, this conclusion shows us about Abram and his character arc, like we've said, about how God is working in him and making him more like Jesus Christ. Okay? So we're going to look first of all at Melchizedek. Melchizedek, I should not have turned from my passage there so quickly. But Melchizedek, and I believe we're going to look at verse number 19. Yes. So this is after Abram has rescued um, his nephew, Lot. He's rescued him. He's, he's defeated this, these armies. And he's bringing his, his nephew back and all these different things. And um, in verse number ni- 19, or excuse me, I meant to say 18. I, I was looking at 18. I said 19. And Melchizedek, king of Salem brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And it's interesting, these are, these are all really, really interesting. It says that he was king of Salem. 
king of Salem. And where they were at geographically during this time was really, really close. It was probably, it might have really actually been in the, the valley of Hebron or Hebron, which is near the city of Jerusalem. All right, and Jerusalem is Jeru plus Salem, right? And he was the king, Melchizedek was the king of Salem. So many, many, and this is not 100% sure, you know, accurate. We're, we're not 100% sure about this because the Bible does not just come out and say it. But many, many people think that Melchizedek was the king in what would, what would one day be called Jerusalem, so, so, Jerusalem, uh, so Melchizedek, uh, right off the bat, he has two, you know, really big connections to Jesus and the Davidic line, you know, the, the, the uh, prophesied line that Jesus would come from, David's line. First of all, he's the king of righteousness, just like Jesus is the king of righteousness. You know, he, he is the one who has made us righteous. He is the righteous king. And also, he, he is the king um, in David's line, and David reigned on a throne in Jerusalem, and all the kings after him from his line, reigned in Jerusalem. All right, so, so there's a connection here with Jesus and the, the Davidic line of kings. But, you know, those are, those are all just kind of, of, of side notes for right now. And also another co third connection here that we see, he brings forth two things, bread and wine. Okay, and I, I've, you know, I read some, some people that are way smarter me, than me that said, well, that was just a common practice. That was just what they ate in those days. And there's, there are other commentators that are like, well, duh, it's very obvious. You know, the, with the Passover and then now with the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, it's, it's so obvious that, that it's connecting it to Jesus. And like I said, the Bible doesn't actually just come out and say it, that he is a type of Christ in this way. But um, the Bible does have a lot to say about a connection with Melchizedek. Um, in Hebrews, I, f I forgot to switch there. But Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 10. Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 10. And this is, this is talking uh, about, about Jesus. It says, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, um, and then really quickly, um, we're going to go to another passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, verse number 1. And this is where it really gets significant um, that, that um, Melchizedek, or that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse, uh, uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse number 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually." Melchizedek comes onto the scene kind of out of nowhere. The, the book of Genesis is known by many as a book of genealogies. As in every character that's introduced is introduced in connection with the character before them. Right? You know, Abram, 
he, his father and then his grandfather and then going all the way back to Noah and then Noah going all the way back to Adam. All these characters are introduced chronologically, genealogically, connected to their families. Hardly any in Genesis have no connection to any other family members. But Melchizedek is really the only significant one in all of Genesis that's mentioned in that light. He is, he is, and, and Hebrews makes a point of it. So we know that it was on purpose. He, Hebrews makes a point that, that he had no father, no mother. He, it's, it doesn't talk about his beginning. doesn't talk about his ending. He was just there. And it, it's highlighting the, the, the same thing about Jesus. That Jesus' authority, his priesthood, everything about Jesus is based on Jesus alone. It's not based, it's not based on other people. Je, you know, Jesus fulfilled prophecies, but, but that was just proof to us. His authority and his, his power, his priesthood, his kingship, everything about Jesus was based on Jesus. It was, it was not based on anyone else. And we, we have to remember that in our lives, that, that Jesus is the eternal one. Jesus' authority in our life is not dependent on any, anything else. Jesus' authority in our life and his sovereignty over our decisions and, our, and our, our discipleship or our following of him is based on his authority. The fact that God became flesh and now we submit to God and God alone in Jesus Christ. He, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and he can go before God and, and offer up a sacrifice for us and that is his own blood. Jesus is an, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so I, I, I wanted to kind of connect those two people um, before we continued on. Hopefully that'll kind of lay a foundation for the major application of this passage. But I also want to look real quickly, <clears throat> excuse me, at the verbiage that he uses when he addresses Abram and he blesses him. Okay, so Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And that's a possessor of heaven and earth is a special name that Abram had not heard before from anyone else. That was a special name for God that, that he was just given. And that was basically a promise, right? It's, it's, a, it's a promise that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that God has promised to, to provide for us. Or Jehovah Jireh, and we can trust in him. And that's a, that's a lesson that God will teach Abram over and over again in his life, that he will always provide for a, whatever he needs, he will provide for him. And we see an excellent example of faith in God's provision coming up here. But I want to look real quick at how um, he, he addresses this and he blesses him. Which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. When, when Melchizedek blesses Abram, when, when, he, when he says, bless be Abram of, of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the most high God which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, what does he major on when he blesses Abram? He doesn't major on the gift that he's given to him. He majors on the, on the giver of the gift. 
He says, blessed be thou of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, and he's the one who's given you victory today. And he's, he's not highlighting, Abram, you know, God's gonna give you all these good things and look at all these great things that, you know, God's gonna make you happy and, and God's gonna give you the life that you always wanted and God's gonna give you all these things. He's gonna, he's gonna give you a nice house. He's gonna give you a nice car. He's gonna give you all these things. No, he says, blessed be thou. Okay, there's the blessing, there's the gift. He doesn't give him a specific blessing. He just says, blessed be thou. And then he talks about how great God is. How great this God that he's being blessed by. In our Christian lives, we have to remember the same thing. That God doesn't promise us specific blessings. He promises to provide for us, but we have no idea what that will look like. So, you know, sometimes, he, sometimes the way that he provides for us is by dropping something in our lap. But I, most of the time, I want to say, at least in my experience and in my um, lo looking at other people and seeing and observing the lives of others, most of the time he gives us a way to earn things, right? He provides a job. Rather than just giving us all the money that we need, he provides a job for us to earn that, right? That, and th th that's, how, that's how life normally works. God does not promise us wealth and health. He promises to bless us. And, and like we've said before, God's blessing doesn't always look like the most... Um, enjoyable experiences, right? So sometimes God's blessing comes through pain. So sometimes God's blessing is teaching us what the most important things in life are, and that hurts a lot of the time. To understand that following God and pleasing him and serving him and giving to others, to learn those things and to really fundamentally understand those things at the very core of our beings, God has to break us apart a little bit. God, God has to, like, like Pastor Phil says, God has to lean into us and say, I, I need you to learn this lesson. And, and that's the lesson that I think we can see in the way Melchizedek blesses Abram. Just, just like how God gave Abram these promises, he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Abram's like, well, wait a second. I don't have any kids. How can someone have a nation of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren? How can you have a nation from you if you don't have any children? God doesn't give him any explanation. It's the same thing for us. God doesn't, God doesn't explain how we're going to get from point A to point B. And there could be a lot of zigzags in between. What, but what, what matters is not necessarily how we get there, it's how we travel while we're going there. As in, whether or not we're trusting him each step of the way. And that's the, one of the major lessons that Abram learned in his life. And we see that in, in uh, Hebrews 11 as well, as we're, we're going to look at that, at that passage. Abram also submits to Melchizedek. And I want I want to make that very... He submits, when he says he gives him tithes, right? And that, that kind of gives us the model for giving at church. Abram, Abram gives him tithes. That was basically a form of submission. Lesser kings would pay money to, to greater kings. That's just how it worked culturally. And so when, when Abram gives money to Melchizedek, he's submitting to Melchizedek's authority because he is a priest of the Most High God. Because he understands that the God that Abram has decided to serve with his life is the one that Melchizedek is a priest of. 
Okay, and so I, I wanted to just kind of note that significance as well before we move on. Uh, but so we've seen how he responds to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of, of Salem or the king of peace. But next we're going to look at how he responds also, excuse me, to um, the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom. And there's a great contrast here. Great contrast here. It's really funny because if you took out Melchizedek, the story would really make sense. If, if you just told the story of, of, you know, these kings, they have this battle. Abram's nephew, get Lot, gets caught up in, in all this, this stuff. Abram goes to the rescue, saves him. Then the king of Sodom comes and talks to him. It would seem like a good story. Melchizedek doesn't really seem to add anything to the overall narrative except to present a contrast to the way from, from the way that Abram responds to Melchizedek and the way that he responds to Sodom, right? Melchizedek was the king of righteousness. Sodom, as we know in the Bible, it's, it's already been mentioned, Sodom was a wicked place. Sodom was a sinful place. It was a picture of the world's, the world's way of thinking and the world's way of life, okay? And so the way that Abram responds here gives us a great picture of how we should respond to God and the way that God wants us to live our lives and the way that we should worship God. There's a great contrast between that and the way that we should respond to the world system, the world's way of thinking. And, you know, when we talk about the world, sometimes we just, you know, we say the world. It's like this ubiqu ubiquitous thing that we don't really understand. Uh, the, the, the world, or cosmos, like the New Testament uses the word, the world is a system of thought. As in, the world has one way of thinking, and God has one way of thinking, and the world is defined as the system of thought that is opposed to God. Everything in opposition to God, that is the world. So materialism, right? Living, living for the here and now and wanting to please self, you know, always having to gratify every desire. That, all of that stuff, hedonism, materialism, all of that, selfishness, that is the world's way of thinking. As opposed to God's way of thinking, which is, you know, informed and shaped by the gospel that Jesus has changed us and now we live for God, we don't live for self. Okay, and so we see these two systems at war here in this passage and, and Abram responds to the king of Sodom in a totally different way. We read here um, the king of Sodom in verse number 21, and the king of Sodom said unto Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. He uses the name that he had just learned from Melchizedek. Let's keep reading. That, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of, of the men which went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. And a lot of people think that Sodom was trying, the king of Sodom was trying to butter Abram up by offering. It's, it's kind of like he's trying to get him on his side. No, that, this was just a normal practice in that day. I, I don't think this was out of the norm. I think this was just kind of like a common courtesy that people would do. I don't necessarily think this is like Satan offering, you know, I, I don't think that that's it. But at the same time, Abram understands the significance here because God has 
promised him he is the possessor of everything. And Abram says, I have, I have sworn, I have lifted up my hand, I've given God worship, and I, I've com- I made a commitment to God that he's going to be the one that provides for me. It's not going to be you. And I think part of the reason is that it's a wicked, a sinful king, a king that, you know, worshiped gods that he did not agree with. And he's like, I'm not going to have anything to do with you because God has been the one to provide for me and I'm going to trust in him. But that's just, that's just what I think. I, I don't know that that's for absolute certain. But I do know for certain that Abram said God's going to be the one that's going to provide for me and, and not, it's not going to be you. And I like what he says that... He says in verse number um, 23, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, so I don't want you to be able to say that I have made Abram rich. He says, I don't want you to be able to take credit for what God has promised to do. Psalm, Psalm 109, I, w- I was reading, reading the other day, I, I found um, this passage, Psalm let me put it up on the screen there. Psalm 109, verse number 21, the Bible says, But do thou for me, O God the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. I, I want to hone in on those words, for thy name's sake. This is a kind of a common theme in the Psalms that, that David or wh- whatever psalmist is writing they will ask for God's blessing, but they put this little, not always, but sometimes there's this theme of, they put this caveat on, for thy name's sake. They, the reason that they're asking for God's blessing is because they want God to get the credit. For thy name's sake, they're not asking because they want relief from physical problems. They're not asking because they want to feel more comfortable in their lives. They're asking for God's blessing because they want God to get the credit. And, and Abram was the same exact way. He said, I want God to get the credit for providing for me. I don't want people to be able to say that the king of Sodom gave me all these things. I want everyone to look at me and look at the way that I'm, I'm material, materially successful and blessed. I want them to look at that as God fulfills his promises. I want God to get his, the credit for it. Not, 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 for, not for men. And th- that... A- Abram was very, very adamant about that, and we need to be as well. A- Abram had a heavenly or eternal perspective rather than an earthly one. Real quickly, we'll, we'll look at one more passage in Hebrews about Melchizedek. Kind of going back, now that we've seen everything that's transpired in this passage, I, w- I want to read these verses really quick. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a which he could after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in the, in the, in the tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him, with him of the same promise. Verses, and then uh, verse number 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was not looking for an earthly city. He was looking for one that God would give to him. 
His priority was, was not in acquiring things. His priority was, God has promised to bless me. I don't know what that looks like, but at the end of the day, I know he is going to provide for me and I'm trusting him anyway. I mean, oh, in that passage, it talks about how he was a sojourner. He was a stranger. He didn't know where he was going. Abram, over and over him, God was giving him opportunities to say, I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know what God's going to do, but God has promised to do something. And I don't, really, I don't really know what the something is. But I know that I have to trust him, and I know that I have to take the next step. And for, for, for Abram, that next step was going to the promised land. That next step was saying no to the king of Sodom. That next step was, was giving, was submitting to the king Melchizedek. Uh, and for, over and over, he had these steps. For us, we have steps as well that are very clearly outlined, and those are found in God's word. These, these are the steps that we follow. These, this is the path that God has given to us. To, to love one another. To to, to it, you know, basically forgive one another. We, we are to live in unity as a church. We are to be kind one to another. We, we are to think on things that are good, just, pure, holy. All, all those things. We are supposed to have thoughts that please God. Every thought should be brought into, the, into submission of Jesus. We, we, we are to trust God with our possessions, not, not, <laughs> not trust ourselves, not trust our efforts, but trust God. We, we, we are to, to live out a good testimony in front of the world. We are to submit to, to authority in our lives. We are to work hard as unto the Lord and not unto men. There's all these things that God has given to us that are next steps that we are to do. We, we are to serve God at the local church. We are to be, we are to be a part of, of a local body of believers, not just that works and does things, but also fellowships together and encourages one another in the Lord. We, we are to be reaching out to others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, that is a step of faith that we are to take. We have all these different things that God has given to us the same way that he's given, he gave to Abram. Abram had no idea how things are going to work out. And sometimes when God gives us a fork in the road, we have no idea how things are going to work out. We have, we have no idea how things are going to work out when we know, well, you know, I, I could, and I ever, this is Sunday night crowd, so I know who I'm talking to, but just for perspective. I, I, I know that, I, or excuse me, I don't know how it's going to work out if I commit all this time to being at church and being with God's people and worshiping together. I, don't, I have all these things that I need to get done in my week. I have all these things that I need to do. But we, we just say, God, you promised to provide. You're going to give me the time that I need to get things done. And I have no idea how it's going to work out if I share the gospel with this person. I don't know how they're going to respond. I, I don't know if they're going to like me or not after this conversation. But God's given me this step of faith. And I have to trust him with that. And that is what Abram had to learn over and over again in, this life, in his life. And we see this character arc of how Abram he was making decisions that were not decisions of faith. He was not walking by faith when he lied to Pharaoh about his wife and put his wife in. He was not walking by faith. But in this passage, we see him make choices that are definitely choices of faith. In our lives, sometimes we make decisions and we know definitely 
the way that I responded to that family member in that moment of frustration or, or you know, the, that decision to not share the gospel with that person or wh- whatever the case, you, we could go on and on down the list. Whatever the decision, I know that decision was not a decision of faith. But God can help us. We can, we can have a character arc, so to speak, of, of choosing to make decisions to trust God where we didn't trust God before. And I hope that, that we can learn, like Abram, that we can learn to live in the world, but not of the world. That, that, is, that is ultimately what, what we are as believers. We are in the world. God has given us responsibilities, as we've already said. God's given us you know, families. He's given us friends. He's given us a church family. He's given us a job. He's, he's given us all these different responsibilities that we have. We have to learn how to accept those responsibilities, but ultimately put God first in every single one of those scenarios, just as Abram did. Abram was a man who lived in the world, but he was not of the world. And I hope that we can live that life as well. Let's pray together.